the photographs of the babies, some of them were taken in the clinic when they were discovered and, and it's what the police saw, exactly what the police saw and the crime scene investigators saw. Those bodies, though, were all taken to the medical examiner's office where they were cleaned and they were photographed um, in high definition. And those high definition photographs, which we are reproducing in this exhibition, are really, really extraordinary. There is one of those photographs and it's the, the, the baby has a finger like that, like like in admonition, has pointing, pointing, pointing. And we just met a friend's baby the other day, a very new baby. The baby did exactly that. The baby did this little pointy thing and it was exactly it's like, like pointing at the camera. It was like exactly that. It was like amazing. that. And, and, and that's what people are going to see. Hi, my name is Anne McElhenney. And I'm Phil McAleer. Welcome to the Anne Film Scoop. And I'm just checking if the microphone is working. Yes, it is. Um, so, um, McElhenney, what's on the show today? Well, the big news um, that we want to talk about uh, is on Friday, this Friday, our exhibition Evidence opens in Ohio. We are going to be talking to you this morning, today, about why that's important and why we're doing it in Ohio. It's our photographic exhibition. It's an exhibition of crime scene photographs from the Kermit Gosnell case. So we're taking this American idea of crime scene photographs, which have been photo exhibitions for decades. And we're taking it to the Kermit Gosnell case in Ohio, which is an important place at this moment. So what else is on the show? Josh Fox. Once a liar, always a liar. He lied about fracking and devastated communities in New York and Pennsylvania, allowed Putin to invade Ukraine. So why wouldn't Josh Fox invent lies about Hamas, uh, the Hamas slaughter in Israel? Uh, we bring you exclusive news about the madness that's going on in Josh Fox's brain. He's the director of Gasland. You may remember him as a great that. friend of yours, Philip. Great friend of mine. Yes, friend of the friend of the program. And Barbara Ferrer. Oh, my friend Barbara Ferrer. You're, you love Barbara, don't so you? So Phelan hasn't told me what this story is about. So I'm kind of looking forward to it. She's reared her terrible head again, uh, and it's just as bad as you think. This woman is incapable of telling the truth. Um, and don't forget, she was the one closing our churches, schools, restaurants, beaches. So stand by for her latest duplicity. You'll love it. And what else is on the show? Huh? And BLM and Hamas. What a lovely couple. Yeah. Um, we're going to bring you the latest from their mad coupling. Yeah. Yes, we their mad union. Um, and campuses, uh, college campuses, of course, uh, are right there with Hamas and uh, John Huntsman is displeased but I, I, I would say to John Huntsman where have you been uh, we'll talk about that and uh, Australia has its Trumpian moment or its Brexit moment for our British listeners but the media won't tell you why you really have to struggle uh, to realize this is a Trumpian moment in Australia huge and sea change sea change and we have an interview with Breitbart John Nolte from Breitbart John is one of the greatest writers in the English language and uh, we're going to talk to him about his new novel, Borrowed Time, which is a very, very interesting premise. You won't want to miss this interview. Uh, and uh, we talk about other entertainment issues during the interview as well. So on the photographic exhibition, you can go to the website, evidencetheexhibition.com. That'll tell you all about it. It's uh, The exhibition is in 1241 North High Street in Columbus, Ohio. Columbus, Ohio. So tell people what the exhibition is and how we you know how we came across the, the photographs etc well people who've read the book will remember the Gosnell uh, book so it's about the, the case of Kermit Gosnell who was the uh, Pennsylvania abortion doctor the Philadelphia abortion doctor who's now serving three life sentences for murder uh, he was a opioid dealer a drug dealer he ran a filthy abortion clinic uh, in in Philadelphia 
uh, you know, remember he was being charged and there was a media blackout on the case. We've done a, we now we've made a movie about it, which many of you funded. Uh, we've written a best-selling book on on the matter. We've we've produced a best-selling podcast, one of the top 10 true crime podcasts. We had a play in New York, which the venue was canceled, but the New York had to write, a, New York Times had to write about the play twice. So we're keeping the story in the headlines. And this is another way of keeping the story in the headlines. Well, it's also, it's also a part of the story. Um, as journalists, this is a part of the story that hasn't been told. Mm-hmm. Photojournalism is a, has a very old and long and, and, and distinguished career. Um, photographs do something that words cannot do. Um, if some of you have read, I think a lot of you have read the Gosnell book. And in the preface to the Gosnell book, I talked a lot about photographs and the fact that the photo, what happened uh, in this case in relation to photographs. So when we were investigating this case, we got, we access. got access to what was shown in the courtroom. So these photographs have never been seen before. These are extraordinary photographs that we got access to when we were doing the research for the Gosnell book, for the movie. And these photographs are extraordinary. And we've been kind of bothered by, by these photographs for years and trying try to work out how we can release them. And, and we have come up with a great idea, which is to follow in the tradition of photojournalism, of these kind of journalistic pieces where photographs that are important are published. And this is what we're going to do. And we are having our exhibition is opening this Friday in Columbus, Ohio. And these are a series of photographs of all kinds of things. There's photographs of the clinic itself, of the filthy rooms, the cats that were were walking around. But most significantly, there are photographs that have like that have never before been seen. Photographs of the babies uh, that were discovered in the clinic. Yeah, I mean, I, I particularly like. Funny, there are photographs, as you say, of of his victims, which we keep behind curtains, right? So when you go in, you'll see, uh, you know, evidence from his uh, clinic. You'll see, um, you know, I I particularly like the banality of evil because this was a workplace, right? This was a workplace with dozens of people. This we clocked in uh there was cards there was in jokes there was little you know you don't have to be crazy but it works here you to work here but it helps kind of posters i like the banality it's saying you know this was a house of horrors but this was allowed to happen and this was a you know th- this was an murder in plain sight so there's that aspect to it and uh, you'll see all that you'll get a real feel of the madness of what goes on behind these closed doors then at the rear of the exhibition so it's like it's like a journey so it's like a journey you walk in and actually i think that that's one of the things that the curator has really done really brilliantly here the artist that we've worked with it's absolutely amazing because you walk in and you gradually things get worse as you move forward but you're learning all the time you're learning and we have a multimedia type of um the way that this is presented is through a multimedia people will be able to hear audio as well mm-hmm. um from the podcast and the actual voices of the investigators speaking as you walk through the exhibition and as film says we're very we're very careful that the the pictures of the babies are at the back and what's significant about the pictures of the babies as film said they're not they're behind um black curtains and they deserve that um and people shouldn't be you know people can choose to look at them but what what they represent some of them were murdered some of them were legally aborted some of them were illegally aborted past the 24 hour the 24 week mm-hmm. six month um cutoff limit that there is in pennsylvania but what they all have in common this is the really important point i think film what they all have in common is this is what you're going to get in ohio if the ballot measure cha- uh, is passed they would all so be people le- should know they would all be legal 
So all of them would be legal. So that's what I think is the educational aspect of this. This is a journalistic piece. By the way, this is a journalistic piece that's not being told. And it's interesting. I wanted a reference. You remember in another um, episode of our podcast, we talked about uh, the photograph of the century. You'll see it there, the Guardian newspaper talking about it, the photograph of the century. This was this extraordinary set of photographs that were taken by a photojournalist, uh, a Scandinavian photojournalist, who took these photographs of children in the womb. And the photograph that won the prize that became the photograph of the century was this one of an 18 uh, 18 week old baby um, and there were other photographs in the series eventually he stopped using them because he didn't like that they were being used by um, pro-lifers he didn't like that he didn't like that they were being politicized but it's interesting you know the, the photograph tells the story you don't need to say anything there's nothing to say there's actually nothing to say you just look at the photograph but I think what's important about these photographs um, is, is this one point is this point that this is what it would look like and if mm. no one else is going to report this film we need to do that well and I would also make the point that these are not taken by pro-life people these photographs no. most of the people I would say who took these photographs are probably pro-abortion yeah. actually they're crime scene investigators they're medical examiners people from the medical examiners people from the FBI people from the DEA because Gosnell was also a huge opioid dealer so these are taken for court proceedings they're not mm-hmm. slogans they're not posters uh, so we're showing you and, and the and 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 the exhibition is called evidence so to go to find out more about it and the opening hours and all that in Columbus, Ohio, evidencetheexhibition.com. That's evidencetheexhibition.com. You can also, we're going to have the opening, uh, the grand opening this Friday in Ohio on Friday evening. Write to us at the show. Uh, we'll get you tickets to the opening exhibition. So it's, a, it's in 1241 North High Street in Columbus, Ohio, in, in the short north area which is a funny place name to have on some of the parties. It's the, it's, show the art, the, it's the arts area. Yeah. Uh, so it's uh, evidencetheexhibition.com. I mean, the, the point, I think really I do like your point, Anne, that this, all these, you know, some of them you say uh, he was convicted for murder, some where he was convicted for illegal late-term abortions, some, some were legal, but every one of them under this new law in Ohio, this new referendum would be legal. And by the way, every one of them, I think, would be legal now in many parts, many parts, New York, California, which you don't hear in the media. You hear these sob stories about someone being denied an abortion somewhere. You don't hear that all these states are now making abortion legal up until nine months. So one of the other points I was going to make, just a little small point. So um, these the photographs of the babies, some of them were taken in the clinic when they were discovered and, and it's what the police saw, exactly what the police saw and the crime scene investigators saw. Those bodies, though, were all taken to the medical examiner's office where they were cleaned and they were photographed um, in high definition. And those high definition photographs, which we are reproducing in this exhibition, are really, really extraordinary. And I don't know, I hadn't said this to you before we started recording, film, but there is one of those photographs and it's that the, the baby has a finger like that, like like in admonition, pointing, has, pointing, pointing. And we just met a friend's baby the other day, a very new baby, three and a half week old baby, a friend's baby. And both of us had a quick look at each other. The baby did exactly that. And I don't know maybe what it is, but the baby did this little pointy thing. And it was exactly it's like, like... pointing at the camera. It was like exactly that. It was like that. And, and, and that's what people are going to see. So I think but, it's very important and to remember again that... These photographs, I think this is the strength of them. These are not, they are not part of anyone's campaign. No. They're not a campaign of any kind. These are evidence. That's why we call the exhibition evidence. This is what it looks like. Yes. Um, and and I, want, people- I would like to emphasize that uh, there's, other, you know, there's, there's other photographs. There's, you, you learn the story of, 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 of Kermit Gosnell's 
depraved life in many ways. Uh, his, he was a hoarder. He was a sexual harasser. He was uh, he abused people. Um, he was a drug dealer. He, he sold uh, opioids to. To, he was one of the biggest opioid dealers through prescriptions in the Philadelphia area. You learn what goes on behind these closed doors. You learn what was allowed to go on behind these closed doors. Um, and I mean, for the, the, and for seventeen years, the National Ab- Abortion Federation went in, examined this clinic, said it was the worst clinic they'd ever seen, but didn't tell anyone. Just refused to give them credit. But just the, the, the abortion is allowed. You can kill people if you're also giving abortion. And that's one of the lessons, I think, from this exhibition. Also. I think, well, I think it's worse, worse than the National Abortion Federation, because obviously we, we know what their, what their mentality is. Much, much, much worse than that is obviously the fact, and those of you who read the book know this, that two women died in the clinic, that report after report after report were sent in, complaint after complaint, from doctors, by the way. Some of them handwritten, handed in to the Department of Health and the Department of State in Pennsylvania, and nothing, 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 zero was done for 17 years. And what's incredibly important about that, and I say it all the time, and every time I'm asked to speak, I talk about that because why, like just being really super, super logical, why would you for any minute think that there isn't another Gosnell somewhere else. Why, why would you think that if in a place as regulated, as progressive as Pennsylvania, this man got away with it for decades? Anyway, we really want you to come to the exhibition. We want you to support the exhibition. This is incredibly important. Our plan for this exhibition is to bring this exhibition across the country. People need to know. People need to be educated. And this is a piece of journalism. We're extremely proud to mm-hmm. bring this around the country. But we will do it with your help. Again, you helped us with the movie. You helped us tell this story so many times and we are not finished yet. So if you could, please go to unreportedstoriesociety.com, unreportedstoriesociety.com and support our journalism. Yes. Donate, donate. We are not for profits. We'll be tax deductible. But, you know, it's it costs money. I mean, the, 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 the exhibition is beautiful. We have hired some very professional people. Um, who wish to remain anonymous um, for obvious reasons. But we've, I mean, the, the level of professionalism mm-hmm. and dedication and detail-oriented detail and attention to detail, it's an amazing, amazing project. We're very proud of it. So go to evidencetheexhibition.com, 1241 North High Street, Columbus, Ohio. But we can't do it without your help. So please go to unreportedstorysociety.com, donate whatever you can, and, uh, you know, it's, it'll help make the the exhibition but it'll also help advertise it and get it out to the wider the wider world so moving on unreportedstorysociety.com moving on Josh Fox Sam tell me yes once a liar always a liar as I say he lied about fracking Um, he lied about breast cancer too do you remember that Anne yes um I know what Philip's going to bring up now. This very unfortunate moment where we went to the premiere, premiere of Gasland 2 in New York. And, and I said to Philip as we walked along towards the exhibition, whatever you do, Philip, don't lose the run of yourself. Don't go completely nuts. Don't start shouting. So those of you who know me well possibly know what happened next. Let's play that tip. Oh, no. They're not letting us in. I've already been in. They won't let me in now. Free phone. Yeah. They won't let people into Can a film just, festival in New York City. We, just, we have tickets. We have, to, we have tickets. 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 We have tickets.
We have four tickets in New York City. people into a film Does Robert De Niro know? Does Robert De Niro know? Let me see your tickets. That voice is not my voice. That voice is not a random stranger. That voice shouting is not a random stranger. That voice is the voice of. And Michael well, I think if you'd lie about breast cancer, you're 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 deserving of somebody going. Well, nuts. we should put it in context. Actually, I suppose he 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 had brought out a small, a short movie called "The Sky Is Pink," where he said fracking caused a spike in breast cancer. Um, in the Dallas Fort Worth area. Yeah, and the American Cancer Society, all these oncologists said, "No, that's complete nonsense." He never withdrew the allegation but he didn't put any of that the sky is pink into Gasland too like if you've got this rock solid evidence that it caused breast cancer as I say if, if there's proof I would call for a moratorium and fracking yeah. so either he doesn't believe it or and if he believes it why isn't it in Gasland too and it wasn't in Gasland too it's because he doesn't believe it but he wants to keep the scaremongering lies out there so he's now moved on to uh, Israel i, I Josh Fox, I believe, is Jewish, but uh, this is his uh, post on Instagram. I follow on Instagram, so you don't have to. These attacks play into Netanyahu's hands. They give him justification for more murder, which in turn consolidates the sentiment of hatred for Jews. So it's all your own fault, Jews, this Hamas thing. Um, And and he was saying that was Netanyahu's intent the whole time. In fact, all of these... uh, Participants, this is the line, though. This is the appalling line. It's hard for me to believe that corrupt Netanyahu didn't know about the attacks. That, you know, hard for me to believe that it was, quote, a failure, close quotes, of intelligence. He must have known, like Bush knew about 9 11. It plays into his genocidal ambition. Oh, my God. Okay. All right. Yeah. You didn't know that. Yeah. He's I, a truther, I, then. He said, I mean, he's, one, he's a very. Um, very unique group. He's a 9-11 truther and a uh, Israel, uh, you know, Israel 9-11 truther. So that's the person who uh, has destroyed the fracking, fracking industry in wide swathes of America, white all over Europe. That's the man who made sure that Germany doesn't frack, UK doesn't frack, Ireland doesn't frack. And so that Putin was able to evade Ukraine because he can. He, we still need him for his fuel and his gas. And he's basically, he's a 9-11 truther, and he's a Hamas. He basically says, Benjamin Netanyahu, you, you. that 1,200 uh, men, women, and children were going to be murdered. More than more than you allowed it to happen. You it. and allowed it to happen for his oh. own genocidal purposes, according to Josh Fox. So that's, Who needs Jew hitters when you've got uh, Jews like Josh Fox? So, um, next, talking of... Oh, are you going to talk about Barbara Ferrer now? Yes, yes. So Barbara Ferrer, everyone will remember, one of my favourite people during the 
crazy time that we went through with COVID. Barbara Ferrer, you will remember, is the head of public health in Los Angeles County, which is the most populated county, I think, in America mm-hmm. and certainly the richest. Uh, but I think it's also, and it's our county. I think it's, I think it's definitely, actually, it might be the richest, but it's the most populated county, I think, in the country. Um, yeah. But I think what's extraordinary about Barbara Ferrer, and I've brought this up to a conscious level many times with you, is that she is the head of public health and she is not a doctor she is not a medical doctor now i think she might have a doctorate in social justice i think she does and uh, because obviously they couldn't find a medical doctor to take the job a medical doctor wouldn't take the job uh, but it's, it's, only, but maybe who, it's not paid um, well enough you couldn't who would work for crap uh, public health money like well you know that's true it's only i think it's 55 Maybe it's 60,000 a month. And it's not enough, Philip. I understand that. It's not enough. So no doctor in the world was attracted to this job. No doctor so, yeah, was. Yeah, was it 600,000 a year? 700? He's not great at the maths now, Phelan. But, you know, so no, I think it's very, very large right. amount of money, basically, is what it is. 50 to 60,000. Yeah, so she gets 50 to 60,000 a month to be head of public health in Los Angeles County. But it's not a doctor. But it's not a doctor. But anyway. Well, sure, what do doctors so, know? But anyway, she's got a social justice PhD. So she decided after the Hamas attack on Israel, she sent out an email to her uh, Department of Public Health colleagues. Oh, yes. Well, public health issue, was it? Of some kind? Dear DPH colleagues, um, I just want to extend my con- deepest condolences to our public health colleagues who are members of the Jewish community and are who are friends and family in Israel who have been traumatized or hurt by the appalling terrorist assault and horrific violence inflicted by Hamas. Okay. There is no defense for these atrocities that resulted in the murder and kidnapping of hundreds and hundreds of civilians. I join with others in denouncing all acts of terrorism and send healing prayers to all who are mourning and searching for peace. Okay. Please know if you need support during these difficult times, you can contact our employee assistance program on 213-433-7202. Sincerely, Barbara. Okay. And Anne's looking at me going, why why are we reading this? I'm not sure. I I don't get the point just yet. That was that day. Oh, that was that day. The next day. Did something happen? Oh. The next day. Interesting. And the subject line is yesterday. Thank you, dear PDPH colleagues. Thank you for those who reached out to me to share your concerns with my message, oh sorry, last week, condemning the terrorist attacks in Israel. Because my message did not acknowledge the full complexity of the situation in the Middle East and note the horrifying deaths of hundreds of Palestinian civilians as a result of the actions taken by the Israeli military, my message caused pain for some colleagues. Oh dear. And, and for this, I am very sorry. My heart breaks for all Palestinian, Muslim, Israeli, Christian and Jewish families and friends that are mourning the loss of loved ones and experiencing the fear and horror of terrorism and war. In public health, we strive to lead in the pursuit of justice for all people, do we? May we stand together to end oppression, violence, terrorism and wars that destroy families and communities. Sincerely, Barbara. My God, she's a peacemaker too. She's, she's, uh, she, learned, she learned that you can't... That, uh, public health does not involve condemning the uh, murder of uh, w- innocent women and children. That's not a public health matter. You know, you have to contextualize it. So BLM and there are another. You know, tell so us BLM. So BLM posted posted this tweet right Chicago very BLM. very early on. BLM Chicago. They're all the same. 
Um, I stand with Palestine and you can see the hand glider there. Um, extraordinary, right? Got Now, in fairness, got a massive reaction mm-hmm. to that and uh, del- subsequently deleted said, said meme. Yeah. However, that meme has already started to travel and people have seen that particular meme on the back of backpacks of people who were out mm-hmm. protesting. Yes. Um, the uh, are, are supporting Palestine, Extra- you know, yes. just extraordinary. But, but I love this Black Lives Matter grassroots grassroots uh, attack them for attack BLM Chicago for deleting the, oh, the right, meme. Yes, good. you know, yeah, so yeah. it's like, you know, as a bit like uh, that thing I would say where you know, remember Frank Sinatra disassociated himself from Jane Fonda's oh, yes. disassociation and yes. the, the Academy disassociated them from that. Well, actually, that sort of segues beautifully into the next thing we wanted to mention, which is, as you know, and I know it's been everywhere. You know, we've been looking at college campuses. Everyone has been kind of reporting on the kind of extraordinary reaction on college campuses which has been in support of Palestine there have been incredible support of amount, Hamas. and in support of Hamas and some of, and, and some of very very barefaced so there's been a backlash as you as you probably know Harvard had a particularly strong backlash where a number of Wall Street types mm. said give us the names of all the people who have signed on to these pro-Hamas um, petitions um, because we'd really like to not give them a job I just want to say something what they should actually say is give us the names of the people who've been funding these organizations all along. And you know what? I'll give you the name. I'll, I'll help you find those people. Go and look in the mirror, Wall Street titans. What do you think? Where do you think your money has been going? Harvard has, what, 40 billion of an endowment or something like that? And you're, you're giving them money? Uh, you know, where do you think, who do you think funds the decolonization classes and the consent classes and the DEI classes and the all those other you know, who do you think has been destroying? Yeah, where do you think where do you think all this came from? You yes. know, it didn't come out of nowhere, yes. and um, and and really, you weren't paying attention enough, mm-hmm. or you just didn't care enough, or until when it, it really came home to roost. Yes, really came home to roost. It doesn't matter when they were attacking white uh, white people or um, supporting BLM, destroying uh, cities and, and killing thirty five mostly black people. Didn't matter when that was happening, but when they decided to support Hamas, you, you thought we can't have that. Well, you, the, the genie's out of the bottle. You, these institutions are rotten to the core. The most honest, dishonest person of, of all, by the way, and this is is for me is Larry Summers, the former president of Harvard, who, who just cannot is shocked. Shocked, I tell. Shocked, I tell you. To find that uh, the gambling is going on at this institution and that they may be uh, evil people uh, in Harvard. You know, Larry, you've spent the last twenty years uh, decolonizing, uh, making white people feel unwelcome, making sure white and Asian people couldn't get into Harvard by gaming the system. uh, so, uh, and making by the way, I'm making sure that Jewish people couldn't get in either because they were classified as white, privileged, privileged, yeah. and uh, you yeah. game the system until the Supreme Court stopped you like a week ago. Uh, game the system to make sure that uh, black people, people of color, and all these other uh, identity groups and Palestinians and all these identity, making Harvard a center of identity rather than a center of academic rigor. And what happens? They they um they lived up to what you paid them for. Larry. Well, I came across a story that I just had to bring to a conscious level. I just love this so much. So John Huntsman, you'll remember John Huntsman, who ran unsuccessfully for president right. a couple of years ago. Yes. Um, and he is um, an alumni of 
Penn State. Mm-hmm. And the Daily Pennsylvanian has this story. And I'm going to, I'm just going to read. It's just fantastic. So 1987 college graduate John Huntsman Jr. told Penn President Liz McGill that his family. So this is, this has all just really happened in the last, in the last while. Because Penn State were quiet, were very bizarrely quiet. The, um, the administrator, Liz, the president of Penn State, Liz McGill, was very, very quiet in the face of what had happened to the Israelis, um, the attack, the mm-hmm. terrorist attack by Hamas. And so Huntsman was absolutely appalled. And he basically wrote a letter to Liz, and he called her Dear Liz, you know, mm-hmm. and he said that his family will stop donating to Penn, stripping the university of a longtime donor amid a backlash from influential trustees and alumni. In an email to McGill obtained by the Daily Pennsylvanian, this is from the Daily Pennsylvanian, by the way, Huntsman, a, farm, a former university trustee, governor of Utah and United States ambassador. Um, presidential candidate. Said that the Huntsman Foundation will close its checkbook. Ouch. Close its checkbook on future donations to Penn Huntsman. Pen, to Penn. Huntsman, whose family has donated tens of millions to Penn over the course of three generations, wrote that the university had become almost unrecognizable due to administrators' response to anti-Semitism. Here's his quote. Moral relativism has fueled the university's race to the bottom and sadly now has reached a point where remaining impartial is no longer an option, he wrote to McGill after a meeting uh, of the board trustees on Friday night. So... Here's, you know, as, yeah, well, I know, I know your film is going nuts to say No, no, but you then, didn't she then? Oh, no, I love that. We, we do love this. That was Saturday. Then on Sunday, shocker, stop the presses. And I'm sure no one saw this coming. Liz McGill. President. Issued, president of Penn State, issued a statement saying, oh, we just are so sympathetic to all kinds of people and everything. And Very peace sad. And love. A lot the of sadness. The whole thing is really sad. And I, here I am saying everything. Yeah. And I'm sure the timing film is completely coincidental. coincidental. My timing is like what happened to you, John? What happened, Huntsman? John? John, I mean, this where is, were the, you? You know, you were fu- rather than funding the Gosnell movie, rather than funding the Clarence Thomas, uh, you know, funding the Clarence Thomas documentary, rather than funding the, the Ferguson play that we have done, rather than f- funding uh, our po- true crime podcast, you were funding Penn State. They've been at this. For decades, Penn State, Michael Mann, whilst a professor at Penn State, sued Mark, is suing Mark Stein and National Review, uh, trying to impinge on his free speech for uh, Mark Stein attacking the hockey stick and the global warming call. Lawware. Yeah. Isn't that what it's Lawfare. 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 So, what, you know, did you not write to Penn State 10 years ago when he started this attack on Mark Stein and say, a professor at Penn State should have a thicker skin. A professor at Penn State yeah. has a great venue. Yeah. Should publish a paper, an academically rigorously academic paper, saying Mark Stein is wrong. A professor at Penn State, by the way, should not be involved in the climate gate emails where they try and get people fired from prestigious magazines because they're not sufficiently on message. That was all happening at Penn State, uh, Mr. Huntsman. Uh, and you you said nothing, and now now you think that they're a terrible place. They've been terrible for the last twenty years. I wonder, and I question, and I said it to Phelan, and who knows? Because who knows people? Because people are extraordinary. I'm really hoping that John Huntsman sticks to his guns and does not open his checkbook again. But who knows? Maybe who knows? he's been satisfied by Liz. 
uh, McGill. That's too late. Look, there's all these tech billionaires. They can keep these universities going forever. forever. And they have so much money in their endowments that they have no, they had they never have to worry about money ever again. Money. Just getting even a small return on these massive endowments. Money came from Republicans, by the way. Republican, somebody said to me, the Republicans made things and now the, the Democrats, they're, they're becoming billionaires by through tech, right? There's very few fortunes being made in people who make things now. It's all tech fortunes. So as, as, as the making things fortunes decline, they don't need to go for those. They, they've, they've, they've built the places up and now it'll just be ticking along with these tech billions. And well done, John. You funded the destruction of America. Good man. Watch this space. Watch this space. So uh, we're going over to the interview you did earlier. Philip. No, we're going to Australia. Oh, what's happened in Australia? Oh, tell us about. Oh, yes, uh, yes. Well, right. listen, this is a long podcast, so we'll just keep it brief. Australia's had a Trumpian moment. Uh, they had a referendum about giving Aborigines. Sounds very nice, giving Aborigines a voice. And we saw it on the news, and it was resoundingly defeated. But it was on the BBC, and they actually couldn't tell us. They wouldn't tell us why the people had voted against it. It was everyone, people were in tears that it had been defeated. So they interviewed people who were in, as Phelan says, they interviewed people who were so disappointed in the result and it's just terrible, awful and this terrible and so Terrible day for Australia. And you're thinking, you know, without like anyone anywhere, you didn't have to be some kind of genius to think, well, he's now going to, they're, they're going to interview somebody who's going to say, well, why I voted, you know, why no. I voted to change this whole system. Didn't. No, we're not going to have that. We're not going to hear that at all. We're not going to get any representation of yeah. that. And this is a massive sea change. So congratulations so, so, over so, there. Uh, basically, I, you have to go to someone like the Spectator or Fraser Nelson. And it was it's basically the same as Trump. You know, you were told you were evil if you voted for Trump. You're told that, that you, you can't vote for Trump. You're told that Trump's going to lose. You're told, it's a bit like Brexit. And uh, the, 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 the yes vote, we're, we're told, said, just trust us. I know it's a bit vague, but we, honestly, when, 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 you know, you know and, and uh, the no side were accused of disinformation. But funny, the no side said, yeah, we may have disinformation, but you have no information. So it was, it was about, as, as one of the, the speakers says, Australia is a great country. You're, you're, you're treated the same whether you arrived at the boat six months ago or 60,000 years ago. They didn't want anything to do with identity politics. They didn't want to give people exalted status or lower status. And that's what they voted against. They voted against the elites. Sounds very familiar. Sounds like Brexit. Uh, so, yes, we'll go over to John Nolte now. Um, we'll go over, we recorded this previously with John Nolte. I just want to say one thing. It's about his new novel, Borrow Time. We recorded this a couple of weeks ago before the recent events in Israel. We held it because Israel just became such a big story. We didn't have time for it. So John won't be talking about Israel in this. I just want to make that clear. It was recorded just before the Hamas invasion. And uh, let's go over to that interview now where we talk about many things and his new novel, Borrowed Time. Hello. So I'm joined here now by my old friend John Nolte. I first met John Nolte. Did I meet you, John, before Breitbart ever existed or was it just after Breitbart existed? It was it was right around that time. It was it was yeah. about a hundred years ago. I know that. Yes. Yes. Hard to believe. You're, are you employee number one or number two in Breitbart? Uh, Alex Marlowe was the first employee and um, he was an intern then. Now he's running the whole site, doing a great job. I was the first editor in chief uh, of what is now Breitbart News, I was the editor in chief of the first big site, as, it, as they were called then, uh, Big Hollywood. Big Hollywood, yes. I remember uh, I first met Andrew Breitbart at a, an event in Brentwood, Los Angeles, before 
big Hollywood before it was called as he was called the Bigs existed then. Breitbart existed, and he was telling me he was going to hire this guy, John Nolte from was it Dirty Harry or Angry Harry? Is that yeah, was it was Dirty same? Harry's place after the Clint Eastwood character. Anyway, I just for those who don't know John, John is uh, a senior uh, contributor to to Breitbart News. Uh, it, I've said it before, I'll say it again. In my opinion, he's one of the best writers in the English language today. And I, I'm not exaggerating. I'm, I mean that sincerely. Well, thank if you, you want an example, so welcome to the show, John. Appreciate you asking me on. I'm always happy to be here. You want an example of John's writing, go to a recent article by GLAAD, which is, uh, GLAAD is a, it's a gay pressure group, G-L-A-A-D. And they issue a progress report every year about how gayness is represented in the movies and how they need how you need to do more. Um, you always need to do more. And this is what John is so good at. This report is coming out every year, and I always look at it and I always roll my eyes. And I, you know, it's just Hollywood being Hollywood. John, in his latest article, looked at it from the perspective of well, this is them praising grooming. Right. This is them praising, promoting gayness and homosexuality. Right. You know, as they say in Seinfeld, nothing wrong with with gayness, um, but you know, promoting that and and promoting it as something much more prominent than it is. And then John made the point, by the way, in in this article, who wins the Glad Award by far? Who win? Who is the biggest promoter of of homosexuality in the movies? Uh, and it's Disney. It's Disney. It's a it's a children's studio um, aimed at little kids, not just teenagers, but little children. And out of the forty nine or fifty nine movies that Disney released in twenty twenty two, I think twenty twenty one of them or twenty four of them. Twenty four. Twenty four had homosexuality in them, or drag queens, or transsexuals or whatever they're doing and Netflix tied with them. And I don't care what Netflix does with, with its content. It can make everything gay for all I care. I'm not going to watch it, but they, but that's not, that's not a children's studio. Disney's a children's studio. And I am all for teaching kids to treat people who are different with kindness. I'm all for teaching kids tolerance and empathy, but you can do that. And we have been doing it in this country for a long time without uh, exposing them to adult sexuality. And the moment that you bring homosexuality into the into the equation, you're exposing kids to adult sexuality because all of a sudden these uncomfortable questions come up and it's totally inappropriate. And the and it, and it goes beyond that. It's not just some gay character in a movie, which is which they shouldn't be aiming towards children. It's 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 drag queens. It's transsexualism and transsexualism is a horror show of mutilation and puberty blockers that destroys kids and puts them on the on the road to a much higher suicide rate than they would have normally. And it is out and out grooming. They are trying to turn these children into twisted little psychological wrecks so that they can take advantage of them and that they will vote a certain way. And Disney has become a company, Disney was once a company that went out of its way to protect the innocence of children. Yeah. And now it's become an evil company that is determined to destroy your child's innocence, to come in between yeah. you and your child 
um, and, and decide what's best for them and when. Let's just listen to that statistic again. 24 of their 41 movies were, were GLAD compliant. Now, and GLAD compliant, by the way, is not just there's a gay character in the corner and he walks past. Right. He has to ha- be a component part of the narrative off the story it has to be portrayed in a positive way. You know, it, it goes beyond. This is a organization that it, its whole raison d'etre is young children, and they're putting, they're 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 winning the Glad Awards. I mean, I don't want to talk too much about this because actually, I want to talk about something. I want to talk about your book, right? But do you think Bob Iger has? Any idea? Do you think he? Do you think anyone reads your article and sends it to Bob Iger, who's the the president of uh, and CEO of Disney, and says, or do you think there's any feeling in Disney now? What have we done? Have we gone too far? Or are they just so far in the swamp of their own putrid, um, self congratulatory uh, narcissism that that that, that 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 they never they don't know what alternative opinion exists. I think they know because they've been looking at the box office results. I mean, Disney went from a juggernaut, just a money printing machine that humiliated second place at the box office. And now everything is bombing. No one's watching your channel when no one's watching your networks and you're making all that money. You don't have to worry about merit. You don't have to worry about pleasing the customer because dummies like me were making companies that hate me like Disney and CNN rich because I wanted to watch Turner Classic Movies and I wanted to watch Fox News. And it's just a terrible system that that just propped up bad companies that didn't care about merit. Streaming is merit. You have to like the content to subscribe to the content. And this is why Disney is losing billions of dollars on its streaming system as the cable TV business comes apart. So there's going to be a reckoning eventually. They're going to have to make stuff that people actually want to watch because that's the only way they're going to make money. Because once the cable TV con comes to an end, and it's going to come to an end pretty soon because people are canceling cable and going to streaming, they're going to have to start doing some merit-based programming to attract us and to hold on to us as, as subscribers. Again, you know, this is another example of, you know, I, I, I watch cable TV, I pay the cable bill, but you were the one, you were the first journalist who, 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 who spelt out what we were doing and how, as you said, I think, I think I'm quoting you here and it's a long time ago, so carriage fees are anti-American. I think you said that. Right. And to me, you know, I love it when a journalist just says something, makes you stop and go, he's right. You know, I, I know this, but he's right. And so, as you say, we, you watch Fox News, you watch, uh, you know, Walking Dead or something, and you don't watch all these right. channels. But because of carriage fees, the cable company is taking our bill and paying Disney for ABC and all the other channels. And they're getting that channel, even though I never watch it. I'm paying for them, even though I never once watch them or watch them once a year. And that's how they were making tens of billions of dollars a year. Is that right? Yeah, I think Disney was making 40 or 60 billion a year 10 years ago, just off of, and nobody watches the Disney Channel. Look at the, look at the ratings. It gets like 100,000 viewers, but they're making a fortune. The only reason CNN is alive is these carriage fees. CNN could not survive on Merit. And Merit is either a streaming service, and we know how long that lasted at CNN. It, it lasted four weeks and they got rid of it. Or merit is 
you make money based on advertising rates, rates, which is based on the number of people who watch. Nobody watches CNN. CNN could never survive without the cable game. And now that cable is dying, thank heaven, all of these chickens are going to come home to roost. Now, I think they're going to try and figure out a way to bundle streaming, where if you want to stream Netflix, you're going to have to subscribe to Disney and Paramount Plus and, and, and these others. I think they're going to find a way to do that. They're going to try to do that. I just hope people don't fall for it. Look, we could talk about this all day, but I, I, we're here for a different reason. Um, we're here to talk about your new novel, your first novel, Borrowed Time by John Nolte. I suppose, what's a nice guy like you doing writing novels? Um, why <laughs> did you decide to write a novel? I mean, every journalist probably thinks they have a novel in them. Why, why did you do it? It was, a, it was an idea that started out as a mental exercise in my head. I think boredom is a good thing. I think one of the downfalls of the iPhone is that we're not bored anymore. And when you're bored, you're forced to think. And it, I, think, I think thinking makes you wiser and introspective, and it also helps you be more creative. And so I like to be bored. If I drive, I don't turn the radio on. I don't, I don't, I don't look at the phone when I'm in bed. And over the years, I just was thinking about what it would be like to be immortal, a guy like me, an everyday guy, not a superhero or a vampire. And I just thought, I thought there'd be three things that would interest me about it. And I wasn't even thinking about writing a story at the time, but it was, what would it be, how would I hide in a country that is increasingly for, forcing us into a corner with, with cameras and digital money and social security numbers and phones that track you everywhere? I wonder what it would be like emotionally to know that you're going to watch everything you love die. Mm -hmm. And then I wonder what it would be like at the very end. You know, it, it's uh, uh, eventually the universe is going to come apart. So what's going to happen to an immortal guy when that happens? I'm, someone might have answered these questions in a story, but I've never seen it. It's always a vampire or superhero or something. Those are very, very interesting. And, and just to give people the idea of the plot here, I mean, sorry to interrupt you. But yeah, you're right. I mean, that's one of the cruxes of, of, of the book is he was able to survive for thousands of years, hundreds of years, uh, because he could just uproot and move to another city or another country, whatever. But with with the surveillance state and the uh, the tracking of people and fingerprints and all that, it became mm -hmm. increasingly it becomes increasingly difficult to reinvent yourself. It becomes increasingly difficult to uh, to hide. Um, uh, so yeah, so that is one of the cruxes of this novel. Sorry, keep going. You you were you were going to say something there. No, go ahead. That, 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 and that, that's a good point. And that's just one of the ways I use. And I don't do it in a partisan way. I don't do it in a because I didn't want to write a partisan. I didn't want to. You know, everything's political. You know that you're an artist. Everything's political. Leave it to Beaver's political. But everything doesn't have to be rhetoric, rhetoric. Everything doesn't have to be dogma. But it is using what you just mentioned is one of the ways that I that I try to explore today's society. So I had that idea in my head and I created this guy in my head and I kind of understood his circumstance and he's stuck on this little motel in the desert and that's kind of where he can hide out, hide out because he doesn't age and people would notice he doesn't age. And now he's married to a woman that he loves and she's dying of old age. His worst nightmare is coming true in that regard. And then I came up with the idea that he would, because his life was his renewable resource, he could sell his life. He could he could make money selling his what his life to deprave rich people, mm -hmm. um, and that's how he would make money. 
because he would always come back. So the story kicks off, basically, the second act kicks off when he gets he gets messed up with the wrong people, the wrong rich people. And I just I just take it from there. And it was when I came up with that idea that I thought, you know, this might be worth writing. And I started writing it about six, seven years ago as a screenplay, which was a mistake because I'm not a good screenwriter. But then more ideas came, more ideas came. And then I thought this is only going to work as a novel. So I started, right? But it was, you know, this, you're a creative guy. The real reason I wrote it is because the story would not let, let me go. I did not want to write a book. I didn't want to give up all that TV time writing a book. I got enough to do in front of the computer, but the story just wouldn't let go of me. And I had yeah. to write it down. I never dreamed I'd finish it. I never dreamed it would be something I'd be proud of. And I certainly never dreamed it would be published, but it all worked out. And I'm, uh, I'm proud of the work. And so far, the reaction is really good. Yeah, I think that's that's you're, you hit the nail on the head there. Sometimes the story is annoying you so much; it's easier to write it. You have to. It's 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 taking you over. You need to get it on the page so that you can mm-hmm. get it out of your mind. Um, yeah, um, you're right. It's not, I mean, and, and funny of anyone who one of the few people who might not know you or, or your work who are listening to this um, will think, "Oh, it's John Nolte." It's it's bombastic it's rhetorical it's funny it is funny but it'll be heavily political it's uh, just to tell people it's not heavily political it does that doesn't mean it doesn't have things to say but it's not right. it's not political you know it's not it's a it's, not a, fo- yeah, it's, a series of fox news hits you know it's not an editorial in any way and um i had some left-wing friends of mine read it believe it or not i have left-wing friends and I didn't tell them anything beforehand. I just said, would you look at this for me? And they were happy to do it. And then when they were done, I said, well, did anything bother you? Did any? And they said, no. And they said, no, it didn't. You know, you don't. Because I think that it would have been hypocritical for me because I've been yelling at Hollywood for years because they break the spell with rhetoric yes. and they, they just intrude on the story. And you want to yeah. just lose yourself in the story. That's why we go to the movies. And that, I worked very hard not to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so far, no one has said that that I have done it. So I, uh, I feel like I accomplished that goal. I think the most important thing a storyteller can do is cast a spell. And my only goal was to write a page turner. Everything was geared towards that. And then I think the biggest sin a storyteller can make is breaking the spell. And we see that all the time now. Totally. Um, totally. And it's, it's just heartbreaking. Totally. As I think we're, I was saying off air, I was watch. I'm in Ireland at the moment, but, um, I was watching, there's a great show on Irish television now called Obituary, right? And uh, it's about, uh, uh, it's a dark comedy, kind of Dexter-ish. And uh, it's about a a woman who works for a small Irish newspaper writing the obituaries. And because of the downturn, she's put on a uh, per obituary rate, right? And she needs the money for her father. And so she's only paid per obituary and people aren't dying quick enough for her. So she's going around <laughs> like Dexter, killing the bad people in the town, uh, to, so that she can write nice things about them and get paid. Right. So you know, it's it's. And the first episode was hilarious, and then the second episode was very good last night. And just in the middle of it, there's this woman, this one of the evil women who she's going to kill because she's not. And one of the the big reasons she uh, she has to be killed is because she's uh, anti-abortion. And I'm going, no, don't do that. Don't destroy my don't story. Do that. And it's not it's just, even that I, it's not my, I don't care about my, her offending my politics. You've just taken me out of this. 
weirdly absurdist, surreal situation, right? I know it's not true. I know it's not real life. You know, you know, I know that even local papers don't have obituary writers anymore, right? Um, (laughs) Nothing's true, you know, but then you bring in this prominent, uh, real Irish political question and just slam it in her face. And I'm going, no. And she broke the spell. Or he, the writer, broke the spell. Yeah, they and they, you know, they, they have to step in and, and make a statement. And, and you know, there are a lot of great directors whose politics I don't agree with, but I love their movies. Um, I love Oliver Stone um, because I think that even when he's trying to make a big political point, he's he's working in themes that are universal. I think JFK is about um, finding the truth. And I think Platoon is about a young man choosing between good the William Defoe character and evil, the Tom Berenger character. And that's why those movies still work. I think Spike Lee, he can go off the rails sometimes, but he's also made some terrific movies, even though I find his politics obnoxious. So there's a way to do it where you get caught in the spell and there are, you're, you're not looking at that stuff, but there, that, that talent seems to be dying very quickly. Everything sucks now. And it's so, and even if, and even if you're watching something, and maybe it's not political. You just sit there waiting for it, and that takes away the enjoyment. I know. I, 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 I but I was so disappointed. I, 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 look, it was just we're stuck in this surreal Irish village, you know, that doesn't exist, and it was called Bally Go Backwards. I can't remember what it was called, and I was just, you know, I was just enjoying <laughs> being caught up in it. And then they just throw in this modern. You know, it's like saying, you know, oh, she, right. she supports Kevin McCarthy. I was like, no, no, it's not. It's definitely not rhetorical. It's not political. If anything, it's it's it, it, you, you try and find the best in everyone, even the bad people. You try and you try and make the bad characters interesting. You try and make us understand their motivations. Um, it's it's very well rounded the book. Oh, oh, thank you. Well, it's a. Uh... That's a big compliment coming from you. I mean, you know, you you and Anne have accomplished so much, so I appreciate that. And it's one of the. I, I remember I was trying to write a character in the book, um, uh, Zoe the sheriff, and I thought, well, I'm going to make this character me. I'm going to give her my ideas, and I thought that'd be sort of subversive because she's a black woman. And so I wrote the character, and by this time she comes in the second half of the book. I'd written a bunch of characters that I was happy with, and I wrote this character, and then I go back the next day and I read the page or two. And it stinks. I'm like, oh, oh. what's going on here? So I, I, I jazz up the language. I jazz up the prose. And then I come back a couple of days later, and it still stinks. And then I had writer's block because I didn't know what I was doing wrong. So I stepped away for a couple of weeks. And then it hit me that I created a Mary Sue. That sh- that I Because, you know, in my arrogance, because I'm so perfect, I made her perfect. And she was boring as hell. Yes. And it was only when I started to add flaws to her her pride and the mistakes that she had made through life that she came alive. And it's the same. It goes both ways. You know, your hero, my protagonist, Joshua Mason, who's immortal, you know, his flaw is the same as his virtue. He he wants to protect his family, but it's that Mm -hmm. desire to protect his family that he makes all these mistakes. And what I did with the evil characters, it's the same thing. If I make them one dimensional, they're no fun at all. So, nope. I mean, nope. the character I loved writing more than any other was Ernest. Ernest. Who's Ernest. this monstrous, yes. terrible monster. 
but he was just a blast to write because, you know, and he was easy to write. He can't, I don't know what that says about me, about, about a child rapist, but he, uh, he came to me all, you know, and he was fun to write because he was a real person. So yeah. that, that, but, and I also think that making a monster human, it makes their behavior all the more chilling. Brian Godawa wrote the My Son Hunter movie, right? And, uh, I, you know, if, if I, I think it, if, if we give him one instruction, and not an instruction, we want one thing, you know, we said, here's the facts, make a movie, make an entertaining movie, you know, make an entertaining script out of that. But one thing we said was, we don't want Hunter Biden to be a stock villain. We don't want him to be right. evil. We don't want him to be, you know, this monster, right? Because where's the, not especially, where's the fun in that? But why would you care then? Bad person being bad at the beginning, bad person being bad at the end. Where's the fun in that? So, so and Brian was very good. You know, Hunter has had a tough life and he had a tough father and tough upbringing. And privilege is a tough upbringing as much as poverty sometimes. Sure it is, um, yeah. And, you know, and he had these opportunities to break out of that. He did. And we presented them. Brian presented them brilliantly within the script and he didn't take them. Right. You know, there was a there was a pathos to him that made him human. He was doing all these terrible things and he was a you know, and I I always feel bad for addicts. You know, I just because I don't think anybody sets out to be an addict. So you gave him a pathos that made him very human. Plus, he's your protagonist. I mean, people have to have to stay with them. You know, I remember I, I, I learned this was watching the movie Downfall, the, the Hitler movie that came out about 20, 20 mm -hmm. years ago. Bruno Gans, just a brilliant portrayal. And every every portrayal of Hitler was him screaming and spitting and manic and one dimensional because that's the that's the cartoon character. But Downfall portrayed Hitler as a human being. He loved his dog. He was nice to his he was nice to his secretaries. He was like an old grandpa. And then you compare that to what he did. And all of a sudden, the horror, because it's what if, if he's a one dimensional villain, you think, well, you know, that can't happen because people aren't like that. But when they're human, like you made Hunter or like Bruno Gans made made Hitler, that really makes the horror of what they did come home because you think, gosh, how many degrees of difference am I from from these people? Well, so so that's why you know. So you made your you made your bad characters human. Uh, you made all all the characters are human, and they're not funny. They're none. I don't see John Nolte in any of them, uh, which is good. That's good. That's good because I'm not a very interesting character at all. <laughs> well, I would disagree with that. So okay, look, there's so much to talk about. Uh, um, uh, what what what? What do you hope uh, people will get out of this book? Um, I mean, well, let's let's talk. You know, the, so the plot is this guy uh, can live forever, and he has a uh, a, a grandson, a stepson, who a grandson, yes, who has grandson, been right? Traumatized, a trauma, traumatic injury, is brain damaged, um, and his wife is dying because she gets old and he doesn't. So she, he's dying and they're running this um, out of the way motel. that's not making any money. In fact, it's losing money. And that was another thing I, I, um, I appreciated what you did was because Anne and I were discussing the characters and uh, Anne was saying, if only he'd invested money 
you know, back then or bought something. And I'm going, yeah, but how do you know back then? Always, I mean, even uh, what do you call the character? Highlander. He's he's rich in modern day New York. All the characters, they're always rich. These people who can live forever because they are they know things. But of course, what if you're just a Joe Schmo who doesn't know, uh, you know, who lives his life and doesn't know the internet's going to come so you don't buy Apple Mac shares, you know, back 30 exactly. years ago. You're just a guy. And you, and so you, he's an ordinary guy who has money problems, but he has big problems now. And as you say, the only thing, and by the way, Charlie, his grandson is a, let's say a complex character is not as, uh, is not as simple as we, as we think either. Um, and he, he, the only marketable thing is that he will never die. So rich men can kill him. I mean, what do you, what do you hope readers will get out of this, or do you just write it for their entertainment? You know, what what do you think the story of the story behind the story of this book is? Mainly, I just wanted to put my money where my mouth is. I mean, you know, I could have written a nonfiction book. I could have written ninety nine reasons CNN sucks and probably sold a lot more copies because that's just the world we live in. You know, I'm not going to make any money. I'm, I'm make, I might make eleven dollars or something on the book. There's no money in fiction. But I just wrote it to put my money where my mouth is, to say, okay, we're tired of Hollywood not coming up with original stories. Mm -hmm. So I tried to write an original story. And like you said, my guy's not rich. You know, I haven't seen that before. And over and over again throughout the book, whenever I got stuck, I would say to myself, okay, my bad idea, like my original idea for Charlie, he was basically Lenny from Of Mice and Men. And that was a great idea in 1930, but it's not so good now. It's been used a million times. So what I would do when I got stuck is I would say, okay, maybe the opposite of my terrible idea is a good idea. And all of a sudden, Charlie just blew up into something amazing um, and took me straight through to the end of the book. And if if I hadn't come up with Charlie, I wouldn't have written the book. And the same thing with uh, him not having any money. You know, I don't, I didn't, and he's not part of history. He's not, he's not forced gumping through history like you see again and again. So I wanted to write an original story. And I hope I did that. I hope people read this and say, well, I've never read something like this before. I've never. And then the other thing I wanted to do, and I think you know this because you, you know, you're an artist, is that hopefully people will take it home with them. You know, they'll think about the characters a little bit and, the, and, and maybe some of the themes um, they'll turn over in their head. I, I tried to walk that fine line where you don't provide all the answers, but not in a way that frustrates people that. Yeah. That allows them to, you know, sort of turn it over in their head after as they're walking out to the parking lot if it was a movie. And that's all I wanted to do. I just wanted to write a story that would suck people in and they'd think about it a little bit afterwards and they'd say, okay, that was worth my time. That that was worth my 20 bucks. And that's that was my only ambition. And really, that's a pretty big ambition if you think about it. Um, But beyond that, I had no I don't want to change the way anyone votes. I don't care about any of that stuff. I do that. You know, I, I. I want to change the way people vote, but I've got a huge platform at Breitbart to do that. I didn't need to to use the book for that. Would I be right in saying is it a western? Is it a modern day western, or is that too? Is that just because the? I'm not. I wasn't. I'm not from America, so you know, I wouldn't be as imbued with the the western idea of western culture and and the western. I definitely wanted to give it. See, I don't read a lot of fiction, so I'm a movie guy. So my inspiration was really for the book was Western. That's why I said it in the Southwest and in the desert. And uh, Joshua Mason is sort of the classic loner cowboy who tries not to get involved. And, and then everything goes sideways when he does get involved. And in this case, he falls in love with, 
with his wife. And that's, you know, that's the beginning of all his problems. Yes. And that's a very classic Western. And then the language of the book, um, I wanted to keep it as simple as possible because that's a Western feel, but also try to give, I'm not saying I accomplished this, but the goal was to give it an elegance too through its simplicity. And you see that in a lot of Westerns where, you know, uh, you know, even though the, the, the characters are using simple, I, I don't use words like I reckon, I didn't do anything like that because I think that would have sounded silly in this book, but the, just the simplicity of the language. I didn't, you know, I, I wasn't trying to impress anyone with my thesaurus skills. Oh, well, thank God for that because that kills many <laughs> a good piece of writing. And I mean, that, uh, you know, I've, I, I say this often, you know, it, it, I, I must find out who, who the original quote is, but the quote is, it's easy to be clever, but the clever thing is to be simple. And, uh, and yeah, and is simple a, is hard. Simple is really hard. You say the book isn't, political or you don't want to change the way people vote but but there is an attitude in the book isn't there there's, there's a underlying theme of 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 the modern world you know you know I'm, I'm picking up some kind of commentary on modern life good evil you know even god and and, and morality there is a, there's a moral backbone to the book is there or am I, is that just me? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's not, I, I would, I would, you know, you use the word political. It's so loaded. Um, I'm always afraid to use it. But like I said, leave it to Beaver is political. Leave it to Beaver is, is saying to you, this is how a healthy family behaves. So in that sense, is borrowed time political? Sure, sure it is. It has a lot to say about the modern world. Um, I, I deliberately made uh, my, my protagonist, Mason, the ultimate individual, because I believe, you know, if I had a political philosophy, it would be individualism. I think everyone should be able to live their lives however they want, mm -hmm. as long as they don't bother anyone else. You want to be a gay Satan worshiper? I don't care. Just don't throw your, your beer cans in my yard. And so I wanted to make him the ultimate individual in two ways. Number one, there's no one else like him. And number two, he has something everyone else wants, and that's immortality or things they want. So I pit him against the modern world and through the modern world and what he has to deal with, I make the modern world an antagonist mm -hmm. that and it, you know, part of the story that, that that's always blocking him from what he wants to do. And in that respect, I try to talk about how um, it is getting more and more difficult to be your own man in the United States, it's not just the digital money and the social security numbers and all the government forms and all the other ways that we're tracked now. It's just this conformist culture and a culture that where people believe that just because you got something, they're entitled to it. So that's definitely part of it. I have a lot to say about, you know, our relationship with God um, and how, how we, how different people struggle with that. Um, so yeah, there are definitely good and evil too. Uh, so those thematic elements are in there. And yeah, I guess you could call those political, but not, but not, you know, it's not rhetoric. It's not dogma. Yeah. By the way, can I just say, we listened to a lot of the book on uh, Audible. I think it was um, the narrator is superb. He did a great job, didn't he? Wow. Yeah. Wow. I mean, uh, if, to anyone out there, I, I urge you to go and buy Borrowed Time by John Nolte. Uh, if you listen to, if you, if you have to make a choice between the book and the Audible, buy the, you know, buy the Audible uh, if you can, if that's the way you listen to books or read books, because it's 
it adds so much. I, at the, when I first heard the voice, I was like, "Oh, John's not narrating it." I wish John was narrating it. Then I, he's 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 brilliant. Yeah, he did. And he was actually my first review outside of my family because he reached out to me on uh, Facebook to tell me how much he, he enjoyed the book. Uh, so we've gotten friendly since then. And then I, I haven't listened to the whole book yet, but I listened to a good part of it. And I was very, very happy with the job he did. He really added a lot to it. And it's uh, it's a it seems like it'd be very fun to listen to in the car. Thank you very much, John, for, for coming on the show. Um, we could talk all day. Um, the book is Borrowed Time by John Nolte, N-O-L-T-E. You can buy it on Amazon or wherever you get your books. Is that correct? Yeah, it's not in uh, bookstores. Those days are over, but it, you can get it online at Barnes and & Noble and, uh, and, and, and at Amazon. I'm sure there's Target. I think it's at Target, but it's out there. And I want to make everyone a guarantee. I'm guaranteeing this to everyone. If you buy the book and you don't like it, I'm giving you a 100% guarantee that any money I make off your purchase, it will go towards increasing the size of my Blu-ray collection. It's the least <laughs> I can do. Yes, and that's another thing John Nolte is, is, is great about. Buy hard copies of your art because the, the cancel mob are going to destroy it. Um, and they do that. They're, they're doing that all. They're destroying sitcoms from the 70s. They're editing them. They're they're editing sitcoms from the 80s. They're even in the Britain, they edited a series called Little Britain, which was from the noughties. Buy your hard copy and 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 hold hold dear. How, how do people get you on Twitter, John? What's your Twitter handle? It's uh, at Nolte, N-O-L-T-E-N-C, which stands for North Carolina, Nolte NC. I'm all over Twitter. Okay, John, thank you very much. And uh, we will talk again. Yeah, look forward to it. And please say hello to Anne for me. I, I missed her. I, I think people need to, you know, Breitbart, go to Breitbart and read John Nolte. I mean, John Nolte is yes. really, really worth uh, worth reading. He, yes. he he always has a unique take on things. He has a lovely light touch. He is, as you say, Philip, a brilliant writer. Yes. Uh, extremely talented. And we just love him. And his book is called Borrow Time. And we're at the end of the show. Yes. And just to remind everyone that our exhibition opens on Friday in Ohio. Please donate to make journalism like this happen because we can't do it without you. Yes. Uh, if you want information about it, go to evidencetheexhibition.com. Um, it's on. It's in the short north area of Ohio. You'll get all the details at evidencetheexhibition.com, including the opening hours. Uh, please, but please, you know, it, it's, it's, we, we, there's a level of professionalism in this exhibition that I, you will you will love the left will hate it they tried to suppress this story by refusing to cover the gosnell trial remember that and now they will try and suppress this but this is facts this is evidence this is crime scene photographs uh this is very pure journalism by the yes. way it's absolutely pure journalism all these photographs were taken by crime scene detectives by the fbi by the csi by the dea and by the medical examiner. Yeah. So please support us and help us bring this around the country. On reported story society.com. Thank you and good day. Bye. Bye. Bye.